0: Matheson Talks Financial Regulation. Conversations on key issues and new developments in financial services in Ireland.
1: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Matheson Talks Financial Regulation. My name is Claire Scannell and I am the professional support lawyer to Matheson's Financial Institutions Group. We have a full house in the studio today. I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues, partners, Darren Marr, Joe Biesel, Niamh Mulholland and Ian Amara, all of the Financial Institutions Group. So today we thought we'd do something a little different. The beginning of a new year is a great time to take stock and we're going to do exactly that. We're going to have a look back at what 2023 brought and look forward to 2024 and what we expect the direction of travel to be across the regulation of financial services. So looking back at 2023, we're going to start by reflecting on the activities of the central bank and in particular, our own and our clients' interactions with them across various sectors. Ian, I might start with you first, if you don't mind. I know in the fintech side of the house, the central bank has been really very active. Could you give us a sense of what 2023 held for your clients?
2: Hi, Claire. Great to be here. Yeah, so 2023 was a very busy year in the fintech sector. During January, we had a new dear CEO letter issued by the central bank addressed to payment and e-money institutions. And that set the ball rolling for an intensive year of supervision. In particular, we had firms having to do a safeguarding audit for the first time around how they handle client monies. And while that took a little bit of time to get up and running by October, all firms had to complete that. And it's very likely that in the coming year, we're going to see a response to what those audits brought to the surface. And it's doubtless going to prompt new approaches to supervision in the months ahead. We've definitely seen a more engaged regulator from the central bank for this sector over the past 12 months. And I I don't see it changing in the coming period. Standards have gone up across the board. And we know that the central bank is taking a really strong interest in the frameworks that firms and boards have in place to manage and monitor their compliance with their regulatory obligations. And these are only becoming more onerous and more stringent. We've seen a proposal for a new PST3 come out earlier in the summer in 2023 and we know that it's going to become a law in the the coming period. So the direction of travel is just more stringent supervision and focus. We've also been engaging with the central bank's innovation hub because we've seen a lot of our clients who are looking to get licensed for the first time want to understand what the regulator's expectations are there. It's very interesting that in November, the central bank made a publication which would, for the first time, introduce a a regulatory sandbox regime, so to speak. They published this consultation paper, and we're going to see in 2024 the outputs of that consultation, but it'll be an interesting experiment for the central bank in terms of facilitating fintechs, startups, much smaller businesses, I suspect, toy around with regulation for the first time. So it's a really, really interesting year ahead, I think, in, in that sense for the fintechs. And ultimately, you know, what we're seeing in the market is a trend towards a growing number of firms in this sector. The regulatory expectations are quite strong. The firms are getting used to that and getting on top of it, I would say, whereas maybe a year or two ago, they were slightly behind it. So it's going to be a very interesting year ahead and uh, certainly an exciting one from where I'm sitting.
1: Great. Thanks, Ian. And yeah. Uh... That consultation paper would be something that we'll be monitoring. And Joe, I might bring you in there on that point around, you know, the central bank looking to really have a lot more stakeholder engagement as they go through with introducing new guidance and regulations. It seems, you know, nearly every week that central bank's schedule of activities has some reference to a stakeholder forum. What does this tell us about the central bank at the moment, Joe? And and have you heard much from your industry contacts about how that's been going for them?
0: Yeah, thanks, Claire. I mean, it is really interesting, and it does certainly mark a change from the approach of the central bank in the past. There was certainly a lot of criticism, I'd say, post financial crisis in the subsequent years, where the central bank, if you like, was quite directive in terms of how they managed things. And uh, there was not much engagement with with the regulated, and that certainly caused frustrations to build up. But in fairness, I think the central bank has listened to a lot of industry feedback, political feedback and so forth. And there's and really started over the past couple of years, not just last year, to open up and establish these stakeholder forums, which are a form of mechanism to communicate. They cover things like climate innovation and financial industry forum, if you like. And I think it's evolving. It's been an education, if you like, but the feedback is good. And I think uh, the evidence is that the central bank is listening. I think things that I would point to, most uh, particularly, I suppose, is the individual accountability framework and the consultation that was issued there. I haven't actually gone back and done the reconciliation, but I'm sort of working in the area 25 years and we've seen lots lots of consultation papers and Certainly, the feeling would be, as I haven't done the reconciliation, that the there is never, typically there isn't a huge difference between the draft issued by the bank and the final version, notwithstanding there might have been lots of, lots of uh, industry feedback and so forth, a little, uh, contributions to consultations. But on the IF it's quite different. Uh, it's an important uh, piece of legislation. It's important development. A lot of firms, ourselves, industry bodies, made submissions. And clearly the central bank did listen because they made substantial changes. And it's this is one of these cases, one of the rare cases possibly, where uh, the final version as published is significantly different to, to the first draft. And in fairness to the regulator and Jerry Cross specifically, the head of policy there, talked about the fair challenge that was presented. So they clearly listened to what was said and made changes. And in fact, it's not finished yet. There's still some further work to, to be done. So I think there's a a good precedent, I think, there in terms of uh, further ongoing engagement, and I think that augurs well. So I think, you know, things are changing. And the other point I would make is, is you know, they, they've started their annual conference as well, I think, and the Aviva, and you know, they'll do that again this year. That's a good forum, very high level speakers. And it's really part of their sort of drive to improve stakeholder engagement and stakeholder knowledge, I think, of of what they're doing and why they're doing it, if you like. So I think all that's to be recommended. It's really traveling in the right direction. So I guess in terms of this year and beyond, that's a good thing.
1: Great, Joe. And I suppose you mentioned the IAF there and and Neva might be remiss not to bring you in at this point on, on that.
3: I know it's January. Has the dust settled a little bit? Do we know where we're going with this? Yeah, it's really interesting question, Claire. So obviously firms have been working for quite a while alongside the Department of Finance, the Central Bank. I mean, this has been a real topic of conversation for the last number of years, if we're honest. And second, as we always say to clients, it's not a blank sheet of paper. So certainly clients had a lot to leverage in terms of their own policies, procedures, operating processes, but also value statements So their own internal corporate and individual values were brought to the forefront in adopting IAF. So you're right in that, you know, there's a lot of dust settled on the fitness and probity aspect of it, on the conduct aspect of it. That was certainly the big piece of work in 2023 in the core area of focus. And then through into 2024, you have the SEER, the Senior Executive Accountability Regime, That the first deadline for that is the 1st of July of this year. So, firms will be working towards that. To pick up on Joe's point, actually, that's not the deadline for non executive directors. So, that was one of the key points the central bank took up in terms of the feedback to its consultation. And it was really helpful actually to see that dialogue because there was a lot of arguments both ways for inclusion and non inclusion. So, there's a constructive and mindful approach, I would say, in that it's a deferral to see how the regime goes for the first year to the 1st of July 2025 before the question about the inclusion of non-executive directors is is considered. So I think that's really responsible and responsive and shows kind of the innate dynamic nature of the regime. So that continuation will be a trend for 2024. A lot of groundwork was done in 2023 for SEER for those in-scope firms because naturally the requirements of fitness and probity, the requirements and conduct cannot be seen in a siloed or an independent way to those of... Of sear so management responsibility maps have all been started in twenty three. I would expect to see those developed out further, and then the final piece, of course, is you know the test of their regime, the points of implementation. They will all take form uh, in twenty four because the idea here is is that you can't really test the embeddedness of something until you do your first set of performance reviews, you go through your first certification process. So the app, the tangible application and the move from implementation to embeddedness will start in 2024, just with those live test cases, if you like, and the responses to those. And then the feedback loop, as we would talk about quite a bit into the regulator to say, this doesn't work. And here are a couple of really good reasons why, or this doesn't work for this firm. And if you take all those three points together, you should end up with quite a mature regime coming into 2025. Great. And
1: I think that point that you made there in the constructive dialogue with the bank is going to be really, really important. Speaking about dialogue with the bank, Darren, I might bring you in here. On the insurance side, what have you found from interactions? I know particularly in the broker market, we've seen a lot of action with the bank.
4: Hi Claire. So I think from the insurance side, the most interesting development in the market over the past number of years has been the aggregation in the insurance broker sector. It was a sector I think that was ripe for aggregation. You had a lot of smaller brokers around the country and you've a lot of money being deployed from the UK in particular looking to aggregate those businesses and bring them under a single roof. Uh, We've seen a lot of competition for acquisition uh, and a lot of acquisitions that have taken place over the course of the last number of years. We now get to a point where all of those particular aggregators are looking to integrate those businesses that they have acquired. And so for them, the next step will be to ensure that they bring the central bank on that particular journey. I think there's a number of areas where the regulator will be interested to see how those integrations are carried out. I think the first one will be from a compliance perspective. If you're bringing a large number of policyholders into a single entity, it's the communication with the policyholder. So the policyholder Understanding that going forward, albeit their policy remains with the insurer, the advice that they're getting from the broker is now from a single broker. It's a different broker who will be operating kind of a different model. And so, it may be really important that the customers understand through a really detailed communication plan that I think will have to be shared with the regulator as to who the broker is going forward, the type of advice that they can expect. That'll be the re- I think the most important part uh, from the central bank's perspective. On the journey to acquisition, some of these brokers, not all of them, in order to buy them, you do need central bank consent, depending on the type of authorization that they have. Some of them still have the old IAA or Investment Intermediaries Act authorization and therefore change of control provisions still apply. So for the most part, the regulator will be aware of the activity. But again, for any new entity entering the Irish market, they may have completed their acquisitions, but they'll have to demonstrate to the regulator their real commitment now to policyholder protection, to policyholder engagement and to making sure that their policyholders are getting best in class advice going forward. So that'll be really important.
1: Okay, thanks. Sorry, and actually just might bring you in here at this point. On the banking side, what what have you seen with the regulator? Anything in particular that comes to mind?
3: Yeah, I mean, given the centrality of the banking sector, not just to financial services, but also to our daily lives, there's always a panoply of issues and questions to be worked through in, in any one year. I think 2023 was interesting because at the beginning of the year, we saw both the continuation of the discussion, but some real life practical examples of the themes and issues that were articulated in the uh, Department of Finance Retail Banking Review, which was published in 2022. Uh, And as we know, kind of three things that came out of that one was the idea of access to cash. And um, the other is just the availability of, of retail banking services, which is interesting when you contrast the conversations we have typically with clients and, and Ian's clients in particular, but digital banking. This was a real focus area about you know, branch networks, et cetera. And finally, the idea of competition. So when you take those themes and actually have the reality of the withdrawal of Ulster Bank and KBC hitting earlier in the year and the massive undertaking was the switching programs in respect of that the cost of living crisis naturally focused a lot of the retail banks views on customer led internal policies, approaches, making sure that people had what they they needed and they were adaptive to those kind of prevailing circumstances. And, you know, I think I would pick up on what we've already said about the individual accountability framework, which is that customer focused approach is central and is an underlying foundation to that. And in fairness, the banks individually have been Really engaged in culture and in terms of you know client service, it's really interesting to see the work that they've also done in tandem with the Irish Banking Culture Review Board. They've produced their report this year showing that there's actually a ten percent increase in trust in retail banks, and um, which is really interesting and slight more nudge in favour of the branches trust levels rather than banking as a whole. So all moving in the right direction in terms of of retail, but definitely a challenging prevailing environment and, and the retail banks have to continue to keep a focus on Z culture. And consumer led delivery. In terms of the EU and the broader picture, the end of 2023 was the implementation date for the EU intermediate holding company legislation. So that was incredibly complex legislation aimed at achieving a very simple idea, which is that for a certain number of third country banking groups, they essentially needed to have an EU parent. So what does that do? It enabled a single Consolidated supervisory regime to be applied to those entities, rather than a multitude of national competent authorities regulating these groups in in Europe. So it sounds simple, and it sounds like a good idea, but underneath that there was an awful lot of reorganizations, uh, a lot of organizational design changes for enormous um, international banking groups. And it is important to note that when you have a policy change and a legislative change that hits the reality of such a group, so. You're talking about capital, you're talking about consolidation, both accounting and reporting. Um, You're also talking about governance and risk and control architecture. So it's really important to have regulators that are very in tune with those issues and how banks resolve those. And I definitely think we saw a great example in 23 both the European Central Bank and the Central Bank of Ireland being very open, being very constructive as the banks navigated their way through these changes in order to hit the uh, date of the 29th of December. That's a very good news story. Joe,
1: surely it can't all be plain sailing. There has to have been some challenges. Anything that comes to mind?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I suppose there's a perennial authorization process. I mean, across various different authorization types, it just isn't as good as it could be or should be. I think the bank uh, has been much more transparent and Ian mentioned it earlier in terms of outlining its expectations and we do with the bank all the time we're pretty clear on what the regulator needs needs to see and and we work with clients obviously to build that and and I think that's fine the vast majority of our clients are looking for authorizations to access the european market one of the many reasons they come here is because of the credible regulator and and, and that's a good thing so nobody has a problem with high standards i think the issues are I think probably twofold. One is probably, um, I call it operational. It just could be a more efficient uh, system. Uh, things like coordinating their internal comments. Uh, we, we get comments from different subject matter expert teams within the bank, as opposed to sort of one set of comments from the bank, which we reply to. And then another set comes back, if you like. And and that, that's a challenge because people don't quite know where they are in the system. Then they get a set of comments and then they're told there's another set coming and then it, it can be difficult to figure out where you are in the process. And then that itself can be a problem, then you're working your right way through the process and actually maybe the case officer is pretty finished and done with their comments. And then it can be a long time, too long, to get the actual piece of paper. And that's because the central bank has its own governance, which is fine, uh, they have to have their own governance, if you like, they are, they important. important, we, we understand they exercise an important gatekeeper role, but there's next to no transparency on that process. You know, who's involved in it? What has to be done? How long it takes? How far am I away? Because a lot of clients have things lined up and they need to know when to press go if you like operation if you like and, and and that can be very difficult and I think there's a sense of frustration that there isn't a, an appreciation on the part of the, the regulator as to those kind of balls that are being juggled if you like um, so I think you know the I think the actual engagement process the types of questions the quality of the like a scrutiny from the bank is good and high nothing wrong with that every one size standards but I think really just the sort of the project management if I can call it that of the overall let's say authorisation projects could be a lot better but I think to sort of build on the comments that I um, opened with if you like my initial question we have been able to make those comments and they have listened if you like so I mean I, I think I'd be sort of fortunately optimistic if you like to I think that we will you know see some improvements in that area if you like Other things, again, I think, you know, changes to existing permissions, similarly, I'd say the same comments, it can be a little difficult to know how far you are, how long it's going to take. But I would say that is very good and it's been consistently good over many years is the actual change control process. So we do get feedback from other jurisdictions where it can be difficult to predict the change control process. Do they get a sick? Can they get a case officer? Can it go quickly? I think in my career, I can't think of any M&A transaction that was frustrated by the fact that the central bank didn't deliver its approval on time. They're very open and very clear on, on the requirements, if you like. And as long as everyone you know plays ball and provides the documents they need, I think they do that really, really well. And so it's it's never the central bank that holds up even a multi jurisdictional M&A project. And that that's great. They do that well. And then the other piece, I suppose, that I would have seen. Last year and expected this year and, and the year before that a bit is, is the amount of kind of direct interviews with the bank for PCF positions, whether that's part of the authorization process or internal, you know, new promotions, if you like. That's something, you know, we would help those applicants a lot the line i use all the time is nobody ever said i wish i prepared less for that centre bank meeting mm. and people do put the time in even the most senior people put a lot of time into these things and it's the right thing to do it's a practice area that didn't exist several years ago and it, it is um something that people do focus on because the centre bank does does refuse people sometimes it's these sort of uh, the phone call or email I don't think that person, you sure you want to put that person forward as opposed to a, a formal no, but it obviously amounts to the same thing. So I think that's a trend that will continue and people still need to focus on that. And, and we see that in terms of prism into your preparations. I mean, people as you'd expect, take interactions with the centre bank very seriously. So I think they you know, they do the PCF interviews well consistently and they're pretty predictable in terms of, of how they'll approach it and that allows fairness in terms of how they're dealing with it. But people do take the time and it pays off. If you don't take the time you won't get approved. Strikes me the one area we
1: haven't really touched on in terms of central bank's activities is around right enforcement. And is it fair to say it's been relatively quiet on the enforcement prohibition notice side of things and I appreciate that's not necessarily indicative of the bank not doing their job, but is this been driven by the reforms that we're expecting shortly on the ASP and are they maybe holding out until the new regime is in place?
3: Yeah, context is all important here, Claire. I agree. So it is true to say that 2023 was not as active a year as we would have seen in previous years in terms of sanctioned notices, et cetera, being published However, the changes that have been brought about in the individual accountability framework that speak to the investigation and enforcement and powers of the central bank are fairly extensive and they're quite material. And in fairness to the central bank, they also produce, in a very quick turnaround time, a consultation on the administrative sanctions regime. So, you know, that takes a lot of dedicated effort and focused time. and I think we have to, be very clear from the outset that this takes the administrative sanctions procedure onto a statutory footing for the first time. So that in and of itself will mean that the bank will had to look at its caseload had to look at the new requirements and um, that had come in under under the act so what's the most pertinent the split the independence requirement between the investigatory and the inquiry teams in the central bank so that's very significant outlining the criteria that the bank would have regard to when determining the sanction against an individual all of these from a process point of view in any institution would take time to adopt and certainly you would imagine that they would want to get comfortable that all the cases they're working on and we we know that they are working on cases so you know it's not a case as you say of pens down but they will have to just put those cases through the lens of the of the new requirements so i think you know you'll see this year potentially you know, a step back up again in some of those which would maybe in the normal course have been published in 2023, but for the legislative change. But it's definitely a space to watch. And I expect the interaction on the consultation paper to be very active in the first part of this year. It's quite striking. Central Bank gets a very good report card, guys. I think that's the message
1: today. One of the important aspects of our roles is to take time out and to attend industry events and indeed host industry events in order to meet with our clients and engage with experts. So we understand the key pressures that the industries are facing and what our you know, future developments are likely to be. I know you've all been involved in these events and have attended them. I just want to ask you all in turn, maybe, you know, what are your key observations from those events and uh, that struck you as particularly noteworthy? And Darren, we turn to you first on the European insurance firm.
4: Sure. So I had the, uh, the pleasure of interviewing Charles Brindemore, the CEO, global CEO of Intact, the Canadian insurance group at the European Insurance Forum in October, run by Insurance Ireland. We've been actively involved in participating and sponsoring that event for a number of years. So my discussion then with Charles Brindemore, it considers some of the key topics influencing the insurance industry, uh, many of which were explored further throughout the day. So to run down to them, one of the things he focused on was climate change and well, his point was the current insurance model will have to adapt in order to remain viable and climate, climate adaptation will be key to ensuring that viability. There was a lot of discussion about direct consequences of protection gaps and that's become, it's an ongoing issue within the insurance industry and the challenge it presents to the well-being of our economy and society and that's really where People have a policy, they believe it covers them in a particular way, and it simply doesn't cover them for whether that's flooding, uh, whether that's fire risk, and that presents a real problem for both businesses and homeowners. And it's something I think that regulators are really looking for insurers to consider. Cyber risk, as I think with every industry, was described as a massive threat to the insurance industry, but also interesting from the insurance industry perspective, a big opportunity which it needs to come to terms with. And I think we're, we're a little bit away from that at the moment. The biggest talking point for me from the chat with Charles. Regards the influence and the current and projected influence of artificial intelligence on the insurance market. I think he, he made a point really well. We need to ensure there are safeguards in place, in particular for customers, policyholders, but also you don't want to stifle that progress of AI. Interestingly, Petra Heikema of the chair of EOPA recently said that as a supervisory authority, EOPA is technologically neutral, which I found interesting. So her point being that if the insurer fulfills the same requirements, in accordance with regulations, EOPA doesn't care whether that's done on paper, an Excel spreadsheet or to get I to do it for them. However, EOPA have made a really good point, which I agree with, and that is if you do use AI and it goes wrong, how do you pull back from that? Uh, how do you do that in a way that the customer isn't impacted? I think this is something that we'll hear more of in
2: 2024. Yeah. yeah.
1: And Ian, did you see a similar trend on the AI front?
2: Yeah, hugely clear during 2023. I guess AI was, you know, the big conference talking point throughout the calendar year. But, you know, having listened to plenty of talks on AI over the last 12 months, what are the key things I think to take away? I think it's that AI is going to be a a presence of financial institutions, models in the years to come. But the best way I've heard it described is, you know, AI is something you co-pilot with. You don't just let it off and do its own thing. A lot of the concerns and fears around the technology are driven by it losing control, it not being auditable, it running away without human oversight. And I think financial institutions probably have the best governance frameworks compared to some other sectors to be able to integrate technologies like AI into their business models, but at the same time managing the risks because they're well used to having sophisticated risk management frameworks. So, you know, it's very interesting to see where that goes. You know, there's also a lot of discussion at political level in the EU around new AI laws. There's an AI Act and, a, and an AI Liability Act. And, uh, you know, it remains to be seen of where exactly those end up. But I think it's going to be a very interesting area in terms of unlocking new technologies, minimising, say, consumer risks. You know, you can imagine AI being used to mitigate fraud and, you know, having better transaction monitoring tools and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's a very interesting area, but I think you know, we're still only at the starting point of that journey. The other area I would say that has been very interesting is the use of new new technologies to do, say, AML processes. There's a lot of new technology that helps do things like customer onboarding, transaction monitoring, and what we saw during 2023 was a lot of new guidance come out from regulators as to how firms should monitor and assess those tools and also make sure that they're properly embedded into their risk management frameworks. So I think the digitalization of financial services is going to continue at pace in 2024.
1: Thanks, Ian. And and Joe, you did the circuit of a couple of conferences. Anything particularly you'd like to highlight?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the we sponsor the Federation of International Banks in Ireland, or FIBI conference every year. And um, I was struck by the conference this year with something that I haven't seen for a while, which was, which is a bit of optimism, strangely enough. We had a very great lineup of speakers, including very senior people from the ECB. And of course, they did speak about the Silicon Bank failure. And I mean, I remember at the time, after the 08, 09 kind of crash and all the various measures put in place, thinking, well, all the measures are in place. So surely banks won't fail then. And obviously the US did something similar, but clearly Silicon Bank did fail and there's been other issues, if you like. But but I think what was interesting there was actually the reflection that the contagion that uh, was a clear risk didn't actually happen. Mm-hmm. And then Credit Suisse obviously uh, had its issues and ended up getting taken over by UBS, as everyone knows, which is in Europe, obviously not in the EU. And similarly, the the, the fear of, of a contagion that I remember well at the time, uh, everybody sort of getting a jittery is this going to, how is it going to affect European banks, didn't materialize. So I think the legislative framework that was put in place after the last big crisis and the uh, supervisory action that was taken to deal with these sort of uh, mini crises meant that it kind of worked, if you like. And it, it was great to see that th- there was a the bit of optimism that th- the system worked. Now, there wasn't, I think, per to say complacency that nothing can ever happen again. But that was a good thing, right? There's no point in saying it wasn't. It was a good thing. But then I would say it was interesting, contrasting perhaps to what Niamh said a moment ago in relation to competition in retail banks, On the international bank side, there was a level of optimism about increasing the number of banks and reflecting on the success of those institutions in Ireland. Now, a lot, of course, benefited from Brexit and, and are, are boosting up their business models post Brexit obviously interest rate environment is more favourable for them in terms of um, making money and so on but for, for the first time in a long time there was talk of you know we need to double the number of banks and how do we get there in a the number of years and so on and, and I think I think that was great and and I'd say a contrast to previous years if I can call it that
1: Thanks Joe uh, and we might keep the conferences and themes which emerge from the native and uh, the central bank's financial systems conference was a really important uh, conference for everybody in the sector, but there was a lot of focus on the role of non-bank financial institutions during that. And I suppose the regulation or
3: maybe more accurately the lack thereof. Yeah, non-bank financial institutions, or when you're around as long as I am, the return of the bait on shadow banking. So this has been around for quite a while. And in fairness, again, Central Bank have been looking at this quite specifically for quite a period of time. Why? Because Ireland actually is a centre um, and a global centre for for non-bank financial institutions. So we're very much front and centre in uh, in this debate from a regulatory side, but also from a, from a commercial side. So, you know, probably worth taking a step back and say, you know, what actually, what's the concern? What's happening here that's saying there is lending happening, but it's not regulated, which is kind of a a dangerous sentence um, to use. But shadow banking discusses the activity, if you like, or bank-like activity that takes place outside the traditional banking center. So there is, the lending is similar, customers are similar, however, the regulation is not same. That's not to say that there is none, but it is not the same as a very intensive, prudentially heavy CRD, CRO world, right? So who's involved in this? You're talking about money market funds, you're talking about finance companies, you're talking about entities operating through special purpose vehicles. And if you take one of the investment funds, they will take, you know, yours, mine, Joe's and Darren's money as investors, they will give us units or shares in that fund and they'll take the money and they'll use it to go and buy bonds or securities, right? And in that way, they're providing a lending service to that company. And there is an advantage here. And I think it's fair to say that in all the debates, the advantage is called out and that is in line with and complementary to the idea of capital markets union. So certainly in the post-financial crisis era, in the more positive legislative initiatives that have been taken, there is this idea that projects need financing. That financing is not always going to come from the retail banking or institutional banking arena and that's a good thing. And we should actually try and effect the change of European savings to European capital for the general growth of Europe in general and the benefit of its citizens. So there's certainly a key role on the positive side for non-bank financial institutions to play there. However, there is then always the worry that we would go through some sort of a systemic shock as we saw um, in the banking crisis and otherwise. And what you don't want, and I think this is one of the points that came up in the conference, is an imbalance. So you don't want a highly regulated intrusive banking sector and an impression that the non-bank sector is unregulated, right? So they are regulated under fund rules and fund laws. And I said there is a classic debate about banks, lenders, principals and funds, lenders, agents. And that's, you know, a really heavy intellectual policy debate. But what's the nuts and bolts of it? Well, as I said, Ireland is the second largest centre for non-bank financial institutions. So there is no doubt in my mind that this debate will continue and will continue apace. It is too intrinsic to the end of the banking package, the growth capital markets union not to be on the policy table. And there is certainly a dichotomy between those regulators that are trained in the banking sector and those re- and who haven't got exposure to the asset management sector and the capital market sector. And it probably is time for, you know, the proper look at how that sector is regulated, how it functions, what the risks are, systemic and otherwise, in order that you do achieve the balance that was talked about at the conference. Great. Thanks, Niamh. So definitely one for us to keep an eye
1: on. Another area where we're going to have to keep a, a lot of attention on in 2024, Darren, is the review of the Consumer Protection Code. And we've heard Joe speaking earlier about the engagement that went on as part of the IAF, and something similar is is underway now with Consumer Protection Code. As we come closer to the point of publication of the consultation paper, what does Matheson expect to see in that? And you know, are there going to be changes?
4: Sure. I think the first thing to note before we get into the consultation paper itself is that this is a root and branch evaluation of the original CPC. um, So to ensure it means fit for purpose going forward. The plan is to look at and to take into account how the changes that we've talked about, rapid changes in how financial services are delivered through digitalization and other innovative developments, how we can continue to ensure the customers with financial and digital literacy issues are not being left behind. So in particular, you know, they're vulnerable customers or older customers. They are not on technology. They're not using laptops. They're not using mobile phones. We cannot exclude them from the financial services industry. They have to be able to continue to participate in that in the financial services sector, uh, whether that's through use cash, whether that's access to ATMs and all of that is very important. And so I think that will be a part of this review. In terms of what we expect to see in the consultation paper, the central bank's update released last summer addressed outcomes of the discussion paper issued in October 2022. I think that gives us a useful outline, clear of the key points of interest expressed by various stakeholders and an indication of what we're likely to see in the consultation paper. So I'll just run down through some of the things that we are expecting to see. So the first one is proposals regarding the introduction of requirements and guidance on securing customer interests. And there I think... We do expect to see some influence on the central bank in terms of what happened in the UK in terms of adopting the consumer duty requirements. A lot of our clients in the UK have been talking about that. It's been a big influence there. So will that feed its way into this consultation paper? That'll be interesting one to look out for. The potential extension of the CPC into other sectors that are not currently in scope. So that's awaited with interest. Proposals regarding the business standards in line with the Individual Accountability Framework Act along with cross-sector requirements and sector specific standards proposal to consolidate all current standalone consumer protection codes and regulations into, into the CPC itself I think that'd be a really good idea so it'd all be found in one place so I would hope that will be part of the consultation paper and the thing we've we've mentioned previously which is proposals to address changes in delivery of financial services products which will likely uh, consider the influence of digitalization innovation and the need for financial liter- literacy so I think a number of areas to be covered so this is going to be a very broad consultation process. The timeline is something that would slightly concern me. So that has changed a little. So the central bank is now saying that the consultation paper will be released in Q1 of this year. And the intention is that the revised CPC will come into effect at the end of this year with further enhancements following 2025. Now, uh, that's a little troubling. So the further enhancements uh, will reflect outcomes from central bank research, policy work, on the expected implementation of retail banking review recommendations and review of PSD2. So I can, I can understand why, therefore, the central bank would want to incorporate that, that work into the CPC. I can also understand why they want to have the new CPC operational as soon as possible in, in this year, in 2024. But if you're a firm, you can understand why firms are concerned that we may have to make various changes, processes, procedures, systems and controls at the end of, the end of this year. And then have to do a further lift in 2025 when those enhancements are published. So we would, I think, encourage the regulators to think about that, and perhaps it would be better and fairer industry in terms of a time and cost perspective to do a single revision to the CPC so that firms can focus their efforts on one single project rather than have to go back at this a second time.
1: Yeah, I think the point there is that you know there there are so many different compliance projects and governance projects ongoing that, you know, trying to make it a bit more streamlined for the firms would be greatly appreciated.
4: It's just it's just to mention there, it's just, it's just the time and cost involved. There's the same number of people in any organisation who work on these projects. They have a certain amount of time available. There's a certain amount of resources available. And I do think where you have a single project like this, the CPC, it could be done once. And I think that would be fairer on, fairer on those firms.
1: Thanks, Darren. We might just look at a few other topics, Ian. We both spoke recently on a podcast about the introduction of MICA and in particular on the, the transition period and, and the the period that was going to be chosen for those entities who were already regulated at a national level in terms of how they get onto the new regime. There's been a few developments in that at the latter end of 2023. Could you take us through what they were?
2: Sure. So Micah, for those who don't know, is, the, is a new law that's going to regulate crypto assets in Europe for the first time. It comes into full force at the end of December 2024. And a lot of firms in this sector are grappling with their licensing processes to be fit and ready for when the new regime kicks in. One thing that we saw towards the end of 2023 was the coordinated approach of ESMA, the European Securities and Markets Authority, which wrote to all of the national governments in Europe, asking them to make sure the transition period for firms grandfathering into MICA would be set at 12 months. And since that came out, we've seen a consistent approach by different countries. Not every country has revealed their position, but for the most part, all countries are opting for that 12-month period. Some are going a little bit shorter than that, but but no one is seemingly allowing the full 18 months, which Micah wrote down in law. So that's very interesting. It means it's going to be quite a fast and furious transition period for firms in this sector. In Ireland, I've had meetings with the central bank during the last quarter of 2023. And it's clear that at some point in 2024, the existing virtual asset service provider registration regime, which is a domestic AML registration for firms in this space, is going to be shuttered and that the resourcing in the central bank is going to shift towards MICA authorization projects. Alongside that then, ESMA and the EBA have been publishing a lot of regulatory technical standards, a lot of guidance, a lot of like fine detail rules, which will help firms get to grips with the business models that they're going to have to restructure and reorientate in order to be MICA compliant. So it's going to be a very exciting time, but you know, it's a it's a big project for, for everyone in the sector concerned.
1: Thanks, Ian. And another area of development, Joe, what will impact a number of sectors in 2024 and beyond is the European Commission's Retail Investment Strategy proposal, a proposal which the Commission claims is crucial to ensure the success of the Capital Markets Union, With which uh, and you've mentioned earlier. Several aspects of that proposal have been, have proven somewhat controversial in the financial services industry. Could you maybe take us through what those pressure
0: points are? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. Uh, this proposal, the vast majority of EU rules are verticals. There's rules on insurance, rules for banks, rules for investment firms, and and, and they're sort of standalone packages. In the investment space, the the key rule there is is MiFID, Markets and Financial Instruments Directive, and that can first come in in two thousand and seven. I remember going to a a conference in Brussels, MIFID, one year on, which was not unsurprisingly in 2008. <laughs> and uh, that was run by the commission. So we had very senior commissioners, MEPs. We also had like heads of European consumer bodies, heads of European stock markets and so forth. And it was a really interesting uh, discussion. But one kind of talking point that kind of stuck with me, and it's obviously a long time ago now, was the observation that European consumers, somebody who has, let's say, 50,000 euro to, to invest Walks into an institution, it could be a bank or whatever, and depending on the product, the sales process and disclosures is completely different. You can come out with a, a deposit-based product, an insurance product, or some sort of uh, you know securities or a fund, and it's the same fifty thousand and the same kind of probably investment outcome if you like. But the disclosure is the sales process is all kind of, is uh, quite quite different. What this is really trying to address, and we have seen things like um sort of kids and that kind of stuff to standardise that already. But this is a further evolution of that to really make a, a much more standardised process so that it is really the same type of onboarding, same type of disclosures. And I think the pressure points, I suppose, are on the disclosures. I think there are some sectors that, you know, will be forced to disclose more in relation to fees than they are at the moment. And others who already have that standard are delighted because they they want it to be level playing field and others are quite happy the way it is, if you like. I, I mentioned the, the 2008 story, there was a point to that and the point to that which was clearly policymakers at an EU level figured this was an important thing and they've taken that long to get it there. So it is a file that will progress through and we will come out the other end we will see it. So one to watch it still feels a little bit away, but it's certainly one to watch and will affect everybody in one, one form or another.
1: Thanks and. Darren, Joe mentioned there around you know the application of that, that strategy to the insurance market. One area we saw a lot of focus on this year, at the Irish and European level, was in respect of product oversight and governance, or POG, as it affectionately known as. What are the regulatory messages coming through on that front?
4: Yes, there. So this year we saw the outcome of two uh, reviews. So the first was the central bank's teamed inspection on POG requirements. And EOPA's peer review on POG, the EOPA review focused on how European regulators are supervising the application of POG requirements by insurance manufacturers. I think the main message coming out of that is that ultimately, notwithstanding the simplicity or the complexity of your product suite, firms are expected to have robust and effective POG processes in place. So the regulatory message, it's very simple and it's consistent with what we see across a lot of topics. Firmly to strengthen their POG processes. These were essentially introduced by the IDD in 2018. And it's fair to say there's been mixed attempts by different insurance groups to ensure that they have strong POG processes in place. This is clearly something now that's under the spotlight of regulators. So firms really need to be getting on with strengthening those processes. Better alignment of their products and oversight and governance processes with the risk management. And also to put customers' interests at the heart of their business model. And that's really important from a product oversight and governance perspective. What you're trying to do is to ensure as the product manufacturer that you are designing and distributing products to the right cohort of customers where the interests of the customer and and the features of that particular product are aligned. So it's really important that insurers start to focus on this. A couple of points worth noting because as with a lot of topics now, product oversight and governance is to be owned at a board level from a regulatory perspective. We see management with a real challenge of trying to figure out what detail do I bring to the board uh, in relation to this because there's a huge amount of work and effort goes into that. And so, what we would say is that ultimately, the regulators, as far as they're concerned, proper product oversight and governance rests with the board. Therefore, management need to ensure they're bringing a sufficient level of detail to the board to allow the directors to discharge their duty uh, and also to make sure that 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 audit trail is in place to demonstrate that the board took oversight of this and the board ultimately have discharged their own responsibilities. Another point to mention, we are seeing an increasing drive towards planning disreviews reviews by insurance companies to make sure that their products are you know, accessible, clear and transparent in accordance with regulatory expectations. Just a word of caution there. So as we've seen in some of this, there's been a lot of insurance case law, especially in the UK over many years, which interprets certain specific language that is used in policy terms and conditions, insurance policy terms and conditions. So although certain phrases and words may seem archaic or old fashioned, there's a lot of jurisprudence and a lot of case law behind that, which gives a lot of certainty to the meaning of those words. So I just encourage people, when you're rewriting your policy terms and conditions, be careful as to the language that you're replacing. And if you are replacing certain language, make sure you fully understand what that wording means from a legal perspective. And if you are deleting it, that you are replacing it with something which aligns with the legal understanding of that wording. So I just encourage people just to bear that in mind. The other, the other points then is just to highlight EOPA's supervisory statement regarding protection gaps in insurance policies. That really should come out now in proper POG reviews. We're selling a particular policy here. What's the expectation of the customers what's covered? What is actually covered under that policy? Are these exclusions fair? Are these exclusions reasonable? Do our customers understand these exclusions? Do the customers have a different understanding of what's covered by the policy? And that should all now be taken into account and properly documented in order to avoid those protection gaps in the future.
1: Thanks, Darren. Ian, given the requirement to meet the central bank's operational resilience guidance, the deadline was for 1 December last year and the fact that, you know, firms had two years to ensure compliance with that. Are we expecting some supervisory engagement with firms on its implementation in 2024? I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, Dora looming not too far off.
2: Yeah, I think you're dead right, Claire. There's definitely going to be engagement on this topic in in the coming months. My sense from speaking to clients across a range of sectors in recent times has been that while, yes, firms have taken on board the operational resilience guidance, which has been around for the last two years, I get the sense that DORA is going to be a huge project for a lot of mm-hmm. firms in the coming months. Oftentimes the thing that has been holding clients up in terms of getting to grips with it is the the detailed regulatory technical standards which DORA promises and which sets out you know, thresholds for reporting ICT incidents to regulators and you know fine detail around the sort of controls and audit processes they need to have over their ICT risk management. So there's a huge job of work there to be done, I suspect. We only expect the the regulatory technical standards to come out in January and then a a further set later in the summertime. And then it kicks in uh, in January 2025. So I I think a lot of firms have been getting their heads around operational resilience since the guidance that the central bank issued came out. But I I suspect there's going to be a a big job of work in terms of uplifting frameworks and making sure that the units and functions and businesses that deal with information technology are fully up to speed with what the new regulatory requirements are for, for this whole area.
1: We already know much of the direction of travel visas and their strategic priorities, Darren, and they were communicated early enough in Q4 2023. We haven't heard anything from the central bank on their priorities. What are we
4: expecting on that front? Is it going to be largely similar to what we saw last year? Yes. Yeah, so I think from the central bank's perspective last year, they issued their De- dear CEO letter in February that was addressed to all CEOs of regulated financial service providers. Previously, that had simply gone into their kind of annual report, but this time they've actually written directly to all of the CEOs. Uh, I think that's a very positive development. It shows direct engagement uh, between the regulator and industry, which is exactly, I think, what we're all looking for. Very welcome. As you say, we would expect that again in February of this year. Ideally, as you said, the European Supervisory Authorities, all of them have come out uh, with their uh, regulatory priorities for this year. In Q4 of last year, ideally, the central Bank would follow suit by giving people that extra bit of notice. What it allows is your internal compliance, legal and risk functions to develop their plans for the year ahead around the central Bank's priorities and expectations for that year. So I think a little bit extra notice will be helpful. But overall, I think we welcome the central bank's approach of writing those dear CEO letters. In terms of this year, uh, as I said, we're expecting a kind of a, a similar approach. Uh, with regard to priorities, we would expect to get notice of those when the governor speaks to the joint Directors committee early this month. As regards the priorities themselves, we wouldn't expect any real surprises. You would be looking at a natural progression from last year. So some of the things we'd expect to be included the completion of the Consumer Protection Code review, continued engagement between uh, the central bank and industry in relation to individual accountability framework, but in particular, given that the deadline for SEER is is in the middle of this year, developments arising out of the innovation engagement consultation, continuing to progress actions on systemic risks generated by uh, non-banks, strengthening the resilience of the financial system to climate change risks and its ability to support transition to a climate neutral economy, which obviously will be a theme for many years to come. Uh, supporting EU initiatives such as the retail investment strategy in the functioning of an open banking and implementing new EU regulations on digital operational resilience and markets in crypto assets. So a lot for the central bank to be getting on with over the course of
1: 2024. Yeah a lot for our clients to be getting on with as well. <laughs> in <about there>, yeah. <laughs> 2024 is going to be an election heavy year with elections in various member states, the UK and obviously the US presidential election But the European elections in June are of particular interest to us and in our business. Can you maybe remind listeners what the impact of a new parliament and a new commission has on the ongoing legislation? And also, are we expecting in terms of the direction of travel in financial services? And will there be any changes there?
2: Yeah, so, you know, the last few years have seen the EU really drive ahead with new laws, not only in financial services, but also, say, in regulating, you know, big tech firms and the digital economy. A lot of that touches on financial services laws directly or indirectly. And, you know, we've just gone through a huge shopping list of new laws and compliance initiatives that our clients need to get up to speed with. But but quite possibly, you know, the European Parliament elections in June are going to potentially put a pause on, on some of that. You know, as we now enter the first half of 2024, it's likely we're going to end in you know, the political priorities are going to turn more to winning votes rather than getting policy initiatives enacted and finalized. And then, of course, we have to see what the people of Europe elect in terms of a new parliament. Up until now, uh, there's always been a fairly stable majority in the European Parliament around, you know, between Christian Democrats, Social Democrats and the Green Party. That's always ensured there's been a quite a, a solid working majority for the parliament to pass laws with the, the EU government's but under the EU treaties, you know, the European Parliament is a co-legislator. So if Europe takes a lurch to the far left or to the far right, or maybe in both far left and far right directions, that working majority might be there. And so it's possible that, you know, that might come up or slow down the legislative process in the years to come. So it remains to be seen what will happen. It's going to be a very interesting year politically across Europe and, and indeed in the other countries you mentioned. But it's quite possible that the, the rate of reform in terms of new initiatives could potentially break. Yeah, a
1: bit of a slowing down is possible. Okay, I think we might just do a quick roundup of what clients should have on their radars for 2024. I think from a cross-sectoral perspective, we've actually addressed most of them at one point or another today. And I think maybe even what you just provided us down there in terms of the central bank priorities are the kind of things that we can expect people to look at. And so I don't think there's any point in just rehashing all of that. But from a sectoral specific perspective, we might start with you, Niamh, and, and what do you think clients need to have on their radar? 2024,
3: I would say two things. One is I think it's going to be a year of both application and demonstration. So Ian and Darren have kind of given us a long list of laws that are about to have their their legislative deadline, you need to be compliant with them, you know, and a lot of them actually require a lot of effort to demonstrate compliance. But the interesting thing as well, I think, is that we've had a period of time now where some of our more traditional financial services laws have not, you know, been prominent. So you could see some MIFID reviews, for example, and some testing around that, things like remuneration. Um, and I agree with Ian, right? I mean, the Convergence between operational resilience, digital operational resilience, and outsourcing that particular delightful chestnut, right? You've got to make sure that's coherent with your governance and compliance reviews that yourself and Darren mentioned. So that's what I mean by demonstration. We've had a lot of legislative change, a lot of projects have been completed or are currently being completed by clients. And really, they need to be able to demonstrate cogency and coherency, not just at a, you know, we've received a thematic review letter. But also, for their PRISM engagements, as Joe has mentioned, you know, so there's quite a bit of that, and um, that I would expect in 2024. And then, in terms of legislative initiatives, one that I think is actually quite interesting is the European Long Term Investment Fund 2.0. So, we've had LTIFs for a while, they were not very successful. One of the particular challenges that has been had with them actually was that they were tightly aligned to the alternative investment fund managers regime. And that was less than helpful in terms of getting them off the ground. The objective here is to try and get, as we've said before, European savings into European capital projects by means of these long term investment funds. But why am I excited about this? Well, I think it's a really practical demonstration of capital markets union meets investor literacy and consumer focused policies. And then the, the green agenda, right? Sustainable finance, sustainable projects. And we've also seen with the Irish government, I mean, one of the sovereign wealth funds will focus on capital projects. This is the idea here for a European capital financing in a sustainable way, in a way that works, you know, in, for the long-term capital needs of European citizens, but at the same time getting returns for European individuals in terms of their savings and investments. So I think that's a really interesting one. It'll be very multifaceted in terms of how it's outlined. So if you think of LTIFs being part of the purchasing of, you know, or the design finance of some of the big sustainable capital projects we're going to need in the number of years across the European Union, I think it'll be really interesting to see that take off. And, you know, you just are not ending up in situations we've seen in other countries where you have a really serious infrastructure capital deficit because of prevailing economic climates. Uh, But here you have a, a long term eye to both getting good yields and good returns for European investors, but also providing really interesting infrastructure products to allow for the growth and development of the macro economy as well. Thanks, have quite a lot to think about there. Joe,
1: anything that you'd like to highlight in particular?
0: I think I would just probably state the kind of obvious in two things. One is is obviously the sort of green agenda mm-hmm. that Darren has mentioned, you know, that would be prominent for many years to come. That obviously affects banking in terms of of, of lending. It affects investment services in terms of suitability preferences. It affects insurance in terms of actually insuring for, for risk that's related to environmental issues and damage. Uh, and so on. And I would say, you know, gender issues and gender equality uh, haven't gone away and, and that's, that's still an issue. It's still important for policymakers. And, you know, all of these things that we've talked about are, are, are new, but there's these baseline things which are like green agenda, diversity, inequality, if you like, there's still baseline things that everyone has to keep working on, if you like, um, all the time, every year, year in, year out. This year, 2024, as much as any other year, I would say.
1: Down on the insurance side, anything in particular you want to highlight that we haven't touched
4: on? Sure, just a couple of pieces. Uh, So we'll start off with just from a European perspective, Claire, The adoption of the Solvency II Amending Directive, which is very important for the industry, is being promised for mid-2025, the date's been moved by the Commission. If that deadline is to be reached, a lot of the heavy lifting will have to be done throughout 2024. So anticipating a lot of progress on that front, the main area focus that we are expecting and certainly our clients are asking about a lot is in relation to proportionality and that's very understandably so, particularly the supervision of low risk profile undertakings. I mean, it's just extraordinary the level of financial reporting, for example, that they have to do, even though they're low risk on a quarterly and annual basis, we would expect there to be some changes there to make life that bit easier for those firms. Also the relaxation of ring fencing requirements and the holding periods of assets uh, to free up capital and the possible reduction in the risk margin. So these are really important features of the, of the current solvency II regime. And it is expected that certainly from a perspective, those requirements will be reduced for low-risk low entities. The other piece I mentioned, just the IDD, or the um, Insurance Distribution Directive, the OPA is required to prepare a report on its application every two years. Next report is expected early this year given the topics considered during the five-year of the IDD event held by EOPA in March 2023. Can see commentary and recommendations regarding ongoing issues relating to practical application of the IDD, digitalization, and new distribution models, obviously very important. The emergence of more sustainable insurance products and integration of sustainability factors, risks and preferences into the IDD. So all of that is very important as part of that, that review. The other piece, just to mention EOPA for its 2023-2026 to 2026 strategy, a key focus in there would be protection gaps, which we've mentioned a number of times during this this podcast. From a domestic perspective, just three things to mention on the insurance side. So the impact of the risk of the hardening reinsurance market, that's obviously a big issue for insurance companies and sedents who are engaging with the reinsurance market. The central bank has indicated it expects firms to do in-depth consideration of this risk moving forward. So the central bank has asked for that. People need to document that review and have clear action points which are which are followed up on and, and implemented. And then regarding the guidance for insurance and reinsurance undertakings on climate change risks that was published in March of last year, the Central Bank has recently provided firms examples of best practice in this area and encouraged them to reflect on this as they develop their climate change response. Firms need to take this into account when carrying out their own risk assessments. Finally, some people listening to this podcast in the insurance sector may already be in scope of the Central bank's cybersecurity thematic review. That's aimed at assessing a range of cybersecurity controls. Based on responses to a re- recent cybersecurity questionnaire. And we understand the central bank will continue this theme of reviews, thematic reviews on, on cyber risk into 2024. So there may be further communications with firms on this. Well,
1: thanks so much, everyone, for your insights. I expect listeners
4: will have found it really, really, very useful
1: as they look to finalize their 2024 plans. The best way for our listeners to keep up to date on the developments discussed today and anything else which arises over the course of 2024 is to check out the Financial Institutions Group's weekly top five at five email. FIG's top five at five is a complimentary weekly subscription service where our subject matter experts highlight five of the previous week's key financial services developments. If you're not subscribed and you'd like to be, please reach out to myself or any of our speakers today and we will have you added to the list. In the meantime, thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Matheson Talks Financial Regulation. Until next time, Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to Matheson Talks Financial Regulation. For more information on issues raised in this podcast or for any general queries, you can contact claire.scannell at matheson.com or visit our website at matheson.com.